0: Jesus taught that after he was crucified and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, he would come again at the end of
1: history. So Jesus Christ is going to come again. He's coming back. And in the
0: passage we're going to study this afternoon, Luke chapter 17, Jesus gives us four ways to prepare ourselves for his return, four ways to prepare our our hearts for Jesus coming back. But before we look at Luke 17, to help us understand this passage, I thought it would be helpful to take kind of a big look at the Bible timeline of world history to see what happens and why the second coming of Christ is so significant. So world history in the Bible can be divided into five main parts. Let's see what we can get a picture of here. Beautiful. Deborah, Deborah's amazing back there. Thank you, Deborah. So here's these five main time periods. First of all, way back Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom. God created an amazing universe, a beautiful world, and Adam and Eve, there was no sin, there was no death, Just perfect, heart-filling joy in beholding God in all of his beauty and majesty and wisdom and power and love. Perfect fellowship with God, having your hearts filled with the joy of worshiping him. That was Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve and joy, the blessings of God's kingdom. But then tragically, in Genesis chapter
1: 3, sin cost us God's kingdom and brought God's curse. Instead,
0: Genesis 3, Adam and Eve did what we've all done. They rebelled against God, and in in judgment, God removed the blessings of the kingdom and brought his curse to the world. He was still in control of everything, but he allowed the world to suffer. Sickness, oppression from Satan, wars, famine, poverty, death. It's all a result of the the curse because of our sin. But the story does not stop there. All through the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, God promises to restore his kingdom fully with all the blessings. God's going to restore it all. That's the third period. All through the Old Testament, God promises he's going to restore the kingdom. But this is going to be done in two phases. That's not crystal clear in the Old Testament. It is crystal clear in the New Testament. The kingdom's going to be fully restored in two phases. So phase one, which is number four here on on the list, in Jesus, God's kingdom came partially. Partially. Jesus died on the cross. The Messiah, he died on the cross, paying for the sins of everyone who would turn from their sin and put their trust in him. And he restored us into relationship with God. And he also restored God's kingdom here on earth, partially.
1: Not fully. That's going to come. Oh, it is going to come. But first, partially. Satan's
0: power was broken when Jesus the Messiah came, but it was not removed. Broken, but not removed. Through Jesus, we do come to know God, but not as fully as we will know him in heaven, face to face. We still battle sin. We still suffer. God does heal the sick all through the New Testament time period, but it's not always his will to heal the sick. And While God's in control of everything, through this time period, the New Testament, both Satan's rule and power is increasing and God's rule and power is increasing and the warfare intensifies more and more and more all the way to the ends. But our job during this time, this New Testament time period, is to take the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom to every nation,
1: to every language, to every tribe. Then, fifth, in the future, Jesus will come again, bringing all the blessings of the kingdom.
0: All the blessings of the kingdom. This is the second coming. So, Jesus destroys and removes Satan, casts him into hell. And and all those who refuse to bend their knee before Jesus, who keep their hearts turned away from Jesus Christ, they will be cast into, into hell forever. But all those who have repented of their sins, who have put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord and as their treasure, will be welcomed into the glories of knowing God, fully face-to-face in Christ
1: forever. Heaven. No more sickness. No more death no more poverty, wars, famine,
0: face-to-face fellowship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, overflowing joy forever, the full blessings of the kingdom. So those are the five main time periods.
1: Now, some of you at this point might be asking, what about the rapture? Where does the rapture come in, in that sequence? And I just want to share with you
0: that as I've studied the Scriptures, this might shock some of you, but I've not found any passage that clearly teaches the rapture. Are you sitting down? Okay. And I have found passages, like the one we're going to look at today, which I believe shows us that God's people during this time period are looking ahead not to the rapture, but to the second coming. Now, you do your own study on this. Don't take my word for anything. My job is to show you the book, and we're all studying the book, so you study the scriptures on on your own for this, but I want to share with you what my convictions are, and then you can study and see if you agree or not. So let's turn to Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Amazing passage. And Jesus gives us four ways to prepare ourselves for
1: his return, for the second coming. How should we prepare? First, we must
0: receive God's kingdom now in Jesus. This is especially directed to to those here who are not from any faith background or maybe from a different faith background who've never bent the knee before Jesus and worshipped him, fallen at his feet and said, you are my Lord, you are my God. If you've never come to that place, this is for you. This is the first step. Receive God's kingdom now in Jesus. Look at verses twenty-one and twenty and twenty-one. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, "Look, here it is," or "There,"
1: for behold. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's in the midst of you. So what's going on here? It's very clear that God's kingdom was
0: here in the person of Jesus Christ. It had come in Jesus. I mean, just think about it. Everywhere Jesus went, he left like behind him dozens, hundreds, thousands of people who were healed of their sicknesses who were freed from demonic oppression, who'd felt the forgiveness of God being poured out upon them as Jesus said, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Men and women who'd met God in the person of Jesus Christ, wherever Jesus went, he left behind him hundreds of people who'd been transformed by the blessings of the kingdom as they put their trust in Jesus Christ. So the kingdom had clearly come in the person of Jesus. But the Pharisees were blind to that because of their pride. We've got our religion here. We've got our beliefs here. He's going to threaten everything. Uh-uh. He's not. kingdom of God is not in him. They were blind to Jesus. And so they refused to admit that the kingdom of God was there in the person of Jesus. And so they asked Jesus, Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come?
1: And Jesus tells them, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It is in the midst of you.
0: Now, I should mention, there's one version, the King James Version, which translates that, that the kingdom of God is within you. But that's, that's not the best translation. No other translation puts it that way. And there's two reasons why. One reason is because there's no way that Jesus would have said to the Pharisees, I mean, it's clear, when you read about Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, they were a sinful, unrepentant bunch. And there's no way that Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is within you. It wasn't within them. A second reason is that Jesus never talks about the kingdom of God coming into someone. We enter the kingdom. That's how he talks. The kingdom does not enter into us. We enter into the kingdom. And so it's impossible that Jesus meant that the kingdom of God is within the Pharisees. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is in your midst. Namely, listen. I'm here. I'm in your midst. You've seen my heart, my life, my power, my authority. The kingdom of God is here right in your midst. And that's the first step that any of us must take to prepare for Jesus' return, is to recognize that Jesus is the King, and that all the blessings of the kingdom are found in Him. Jesus Christ is the King, and all the kingdom blessings are found in Him. Forgiveness is found in Jesus you understand that? Complete forgiveness for every sin, past, present, and future found in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness. Power over sin is found in him. Comfort during trials is found in him. The very presence of God is found in Jesus Christ because he is God. So Jesus is the kingdom, and all the blessings of the kingdom are found in him. So, if you haven't yet, now, turn from whatever else you were seeking your life in. See that the life you're looking for is found in the blessings of the kingdom, knowing God in the person of Jesus. Turn from your sin, put your trust in him. And when you do, you will feel his forgiveness coming upon you and his power starting to change you and his presence starting to fill you. You'll be transformed. Receive
1: God's kingdom now in Jesus. That's where it all starts. Have you started? Are you receiving God's kingdom now in Jesus? It's the second step Jesus gives to us
0: understand that Jesus' return will be visible
1: to everyone. Everyone. Verses 22 to 25. And he said to the disciples,
0: The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now, when Jesus talks about one of the days of the Son of Man, he's talking about the second coming. The time when Jesus comes back, world history draws to a close and eternity begins. That's the, the days of the Son of Man. And Jesus knows that everyone who's trusting him, everyone who's met God in Christ, who's been forgiven for sins through Jesus, he knows that every one of us long, we will long for his return. We will wait for his return and be anxious, not, anxious not in a bad way, but, but wanting his return, longing for his return. Satan destroyed, no more sickness, no more death. Especially seeing God face to face, we long for Jesus' return. And that longing can bring us into a danger, which Jesus addresses here in verse 23.
1: And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. What's he talking about? There will be deceitful people who will say, Jesus is going to come back on that mountain.
0: You got to be there for when he comes back. Or he's going to be coming back in Jerusalem. You need to be there when he comes back. Or he's going to come back out in the desert. You got to be there when he comes back. And that, oh, is that true? I want to be there when Jesus comes back. We could be all like traveling here, traveling there. Jesus says, do not go out or follow them. Why not? Verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Jesus' return is not going to be some secret little thing that's happening over here on this one mountaintop for a few select people. Jesus' return is going to be like a bolt of lightning starting over here, flashing across the whole sky. Everybody's going to see it. That's Jesus' point. His return will be seen by everyone. He's going to return in blazing glory and majesty and authority. And everyone's going to see him. Glory, majesty. Everyone, all eight billion people on the world, if he comes back tonight, everyone instantly, Jesus Christ is here. Everyone will know. Whatever religious background they're from, they will know. But now that emphasis on Jesus glory and majesty and supremacy could take the disciples in a direction that Jesus doesn't want them to go in. And so he cautions them in verse 25. But he says, First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. We could think, they could think, that if Jesus is so glorious, that when he returns, he's going to be seen by all 8 billion people on the globe, then there's no way someone that glorious is going to be crucified. Can you see how disciples could think that or how we could think that? I mean, why would somebody with that much authority and glory ever allow himself to be crucified? Why?
1: You know the answer, don't you? It's because he loves you. It's because he loves me. Oh yes, He has that much authority and glory and majesty. When you see Him, you will fall on your face. He is awesome. And to save us, He went to the cross.
0: We've all sinned so much that we deserve to be cast cast apart from God's beauty and glory and majesty and thrown into hell. That's what we all deserve, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can't make ourselves good enough. We can't make up for it. We can't pay God
1: back. We are lost. And he came. And on the cross, he was punished for all the sins
0: of everyone who will put their trust in him. He was punished for your sin. He was punished for my sin. And that humbling of himself, that lowering of himself, when he does come back and all eight billion will see his glory, knowing that this is the crucified Savior, the Lamb that was slain, coming back as the Lion of Judah, it's going to display his glory and his majesty and his love and his mercy all the more clearly, knowing that he was the one that was crucified. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So the second way to prepare for the second coming is to understand that Jesus' return will be visible
1: to everyone instantaneously. You don't need to go somewhere special. Just have your heart be ready. Third, always be ready for Jesus' return. That's how to prepare.
0: Always be ready, verses 26 through 30. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. This is heartbreaking to read about. The point is that before Jesus returns, life will be going on kind of business as usual, eating and drinking and marrying. But then, just like is in Noah's time, without warning, the flood came and destroyed all those who were running from God, all those who were rebelling against God, all unbelievers. It'll be normal life, and then, for unbelievers, it'll be instant destruction and judgment. Same thing, another illustration in verses 28 to 30. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulphur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now notice, Jesus here is focusing on the days of the Son of Man, the second coming, which everyone will see. Jesus, all eight billion, all at the same time, and judgment will come to the unbelievers. See, that's that's not the rapture. The, the, the te- teaching of the rapture is that before the second coming, Jesus will come back secretly and take all of his people home to be with him to protect us from the difficulties that will come between then and the second coming. But see, Jesus has his disciples, us, getting ready for the second coming here. The time when, when he comes back, judgment will come upon unbelievers and everybody's going to see him. And that's not what the doctrine of the rapture is about. So, again, The days of Lot, normal life, eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting, building, but then suddenly without warning, fire and sulfur rained down upon all unbelievers.
1: So the second coming is going to be preceded by normal life and then sudden
0: destruction to unbelievers. Normal life and then sudden destruction.
1: Which means we're not going to know when he's going to come back. We're not going to know. Now, that might raise a question in your mind, and that is
0: didn't Jesus talk about wars and rumors of wars and famine and difficulties like that? And he does. But remember what he says after that he says, but that is not the end. That's the beginning of the birth pangs. That's the beginning of the birth pangs. And you know that birth pangs could be separated a large amount of time from delivery, right? A lot of labor that can go on there. So wars and rumors of wars and famine and those kinds of things are not a sign of the end, but they they will be taking place throughout history up until the ends. So Jesus' point is, he can come back at any time. And when he does, there will be sudden destruction upon all those who have refused to receive him. There will be sudden destruction on all those who have chosen to go their own way, turning their backs on, on God. I mean, think of how suddenly the flood filled the earth. Think of how suddenly the fire and sulfur came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Destruction will come without warning,
1: instantly, on all those who have not bent the knee before Jesus. So Jesus is telling us, always be ready. Always be ready. Jesus could have come back in the next 10 minutes. Are you ready? He could. Or in 100 years. Always be ready. Always be ready.
0: And there's one more extremely important way to get ready for
1: Jesus' return. Fourth, nurture single-minded love for Christ. This
0: is in verses 31 to 37. Now, Jesus starts off with something that we should not do when we see him returning. Verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop, houses in those days were flat-roofed and you could go up there and relax, cool the evening, breezes blowing, Let the one who was on the housetop, with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. What Jesus is talking about here, is just a crazy picture. As if you're up there and and Jesus is coming back, and you're distracted by some possession you want to go take care of in your house. It's like, listen. Jesus is coming back. None of that makes any difference anymore. He's coming back. Are you ready for him? That's the question. And so Jesus' point here is don't let anything distract you. Don't let anything make your heart go after it more than going after Jesus. Nurture in your heart single-minded love for Christ. See, if someone's on the housetop or they're out in the fields and Jesus is coming back, and they want to, just, just a second, Jesus, and they want to go do something else? They've got something that they're more concerned about than Jesus. And that's what he's warning us about. If someone is distracted by something else, that would show that they're not trusting Jesus. They don't understand all that he promises to be to them. They're not banking their hope, their hearts, their life on who he is.
1: That's the problem. And why is that so serious? Verse 32 and verse 33. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life like
0: like Lot's wife did will lose it. But whoever loses his life in Christ, in Jesus Christ, will keep it. Remember Lot's wife? Genesis chapter 19. God had told Lot that he was going to pour out fire and sulfur upon Sodom the city of Sodom. But in great mercy, God says, Lot, get your family out of there. Wife, kids, get your family out of Sodom. But as they were leaving Sodom, Lot's wife looked back longingly, longingly at Sodom, which is not a city you should look back longingly on. She was looking back longingly which showed that what she really loved was her old life in Sodom. And as
1: a result, you know the story, she was turned into a pillar of salt, destroyed. Lot's wife wanted to preserve the life that she had in Sodom. That's what
0: she loved, and as a result, she lost her life. And so Jesus is saying, don't do what Lot's wife did. Don't do what Lot's wife did. Instead, see that the life you long for,
1: it's not found in anything in the world. Nothing around you is going to give you the life that you long for. The life that
0: you long for is found in Jesus Christ, knowing Him, being forgiven by Him, reconciled to God through Him, knowing God in Him. That's where your life is found. When we see that, when we feel that, and when we nurture that single-minded love
1: for Jesus Christ, we find our lives. Then verses 34 to 37. I tell you,
0: in that night, there will be two in one bed. Middle East cultures, women sleeping together, men sleeping together, that happened. There will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other left. Now, some people see the rapture here. And again, this is an area where people can study the Scripture and come to different conclusions. You do your study. I don't see the rapture there. Because remember, this is going to be a time when God's glory will be revealed to everyone on the earth all at one time. Everyone will know that Jesus is back. And it's the time when judgment will be coming upon unbelievers. In other words, this is the second coming. This is happening at the second coming, not not during a rapture. So, this isn't a picture of believers being taken to heaven. But what does it picture? It's not an easy verse. Neither is the next one, verse 35. There will be two women grinding together, grinding cornmeal or wheat.
1: One will be taken, and the other left. A similar situation. So what's going on here? I think we get a clue in verse 37. In verse 37, the next verse, the disciples say, Where, Lord? Well, what are they they asking? Where what? I think the one taken from the bed, where will they be taken?
0: The one taken from the mill, where, Lord, will they be taken? Where? Second coming? All of a sudden, people are just like being taken. Where are
1: they going to be taken? He gives the answer in verse 37. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is. That's where they're going to be taken. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Again, this is not an easy verse to understand.
0: It doesn't sound to me, corpses and vultures doesn't sound like heaven to me. It doesn't sound like heaven. It sounds more like hell. I think what Jesus is saying here is that it's hell where people are corpses. They are dead in their sins, and they are facing the judgment, God's judgment, symbolized by vultures forever. That's what's being described just like the flood at Noah's time, just like the fire and sulfur of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what's being described here. Now, again, you do your study, but that's, that's my conclusion. I think what Jesus is saying in this section is that his return is going to be sudden, and it's going to be without warning, and there will be no time to prepare or get ready at that point. Now, no one should feel like, well, Jesus, you're just being so harsh here. The reason he's telling us this is because he loves us. He doesn't want any of us to be unprepared. He has you here this afternoon so that you will be ready. Be ready when he comes. And if you die before he comes, you'll be really glad because, exact same thing, you'll be ready. Right? You'll be ready. So his point is that his return will be sudden, without warning, and there will be no time to get prepared or ready which means we need to be ready now. And a crucial way to get ready is to nurture in our hearts single-minded love for Jesus Christ. Passionate, fervent, single-minded, white-hot love for
1: Jesus Christ. Kindle that, nurture that, strengthen that, grow that. That's how to get ready. So
0: that when he comes back, we're not like, I need to go down to the house or I need to go do this, but we will be
1: thrilled, running toward him, our Savior, our Master, our Jesus. So how can we tell if we have single-minded love for Jesus Christ? I would encourage you to take some time and ask yourself this question. Right now, in your heart, what do you desire more than Jesus' return? What do you desire more than Jesus' return? If we're honest,
0: we will all admit that we have times when we desire other things
1: more. We all do. I do, and you do. Let's just make sure we're clear about that. But we shouldn't. We should never desire something more than Jesus' return.
0: I mean, just compare the two, whatever it is. There's no comparison. But see, Satan gets us by just tantalizing us with this, and then we just kind of, we don't even think about Jesus' return. If you compare them, the answer is obvious, right? So we need to bring Jesus' return back up into our hearts and our minds and think, ponder, pray. But we all have things from time to time that we desire more than Jesus' return. Like maybe you want to finish that work project before Jesus comes back. So you can get some of the, like some of the applause or maybe get the bonus or whatever it might be. Maybe you're thinking, wow, I, I want him to come back, but I'd really like a couple of years of retirement before he comes back. I can enjoy all that, whatever it is that you do when you retire. Or I'd love to get married before Jesus comes back. Or... we got a great vacation planned here pretty quick. I'd like to get that when I come back from vacation. How about that? Okay. But do you see what's going on with all of those? In every case, there's something that we're desiring more than Jesus' return,
1: which shows that there's something we're desiring more than Jesus, if we're honest with ourselves. Now, if there are things we
0: desire more than Jesus, then we need to understand that our hearts are in a dangerous place spiritually, at that point. Not because you earn heaven by loving Jesus so much. That's not how we get into heaven. It's not how we get forgiven. We're forgiven one way, by trusting Jesus. It's by faith alone in Christ that we are forgiven and we are
1: secured for heaven. But, if you are trusting Jesus, if you are trusting all that God
0: promises to be to you in Jesus Christ, if you are seeing Jesus for who he is, you will desire him more than anything else. You will. You've been there. I've been there. You've felt that. You will. So when we desire other things more than Jesus' return,
1: our hearts are in a dangerous place. But now, here's the good news. What should you do? What can you do? Turn to the Lord Jesus. Everything you need to get your heart reoriented
0: is in him. He's standing before you with his arms open saying, I will take care of that. I will help you. And so we turn to him. And the first step
1: is we confess, I'm loving this more than you right now. I'm desiring this more than your return right now. Help me. Forgive me. Wash me. So you confess, and then you ask, Lord, bring your power upon me.
0: By, by the power of the Holy Spirit, take your word now and change
1: this heart. I love the psalm. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Don't you love that? God's word changes
0: hearts. You've all experienced this, haven't you? If you're following Jesus, you can be just so sunk into worry or longing for this or bitter about that. And This heart's never going to change. And you open up God's word and you pray, and God just starts to work. The word of God empowered by the Spirit changes hearts. The law of the Lord is perfect, transforming the soul. And so ask him to help you by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word. And then open up the book, open up the Bible, focus on passages about who Jesus is, and especially passages about his
1: return, and study those passages. Pray over those passages. Memorize those passages.
0: Think deeply about those passages, and I promise you, as you do prayerfully before the Scriptures, God will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, use those scriptures, and your heart will change. You will start to feel your heart loving Jesus more. And what was I thinking, desiring that more than his return? And, oh, Lord Jesus, you are glorious. You are beautiful. Thank you. I love you. And you'll be restored. Your heart will be, spiritual heart beating again like it was supposed to. Okay? That's how it works with the word. So we come as we are. He will help us. We confess. We ask for his help. Then we open up the scriptures. And he, by his power, will transform our hearts. So I want to urge you, take some time for an honest inventory of your heart.
1: What's going on? What are you desiring more than Jesus' return? So Grace Church, Jesus Christ is coming back.
0: He loves us, and so he gave us this teaching from Luke 17 to prepare us for his return. So, receive God's kingdom now in Jesus. If you've never bent the knee before Jesus before, that's where it all needs to start. You see who Jesus Christ is. You are a sinner in need of forgiveness. He came and he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He will forgive you. He will start to change you, and he will fill you. And so you bend the knee and you trust him and you will enter into the kingdom. That's where it starts. Receive God's kingdom now in Jesus. And understand that Christ's return will be visible to everyone. Don't be distracted by, oh, he's coming back over here, or he's going to be coming back. Everyone's going to see. Third, always be ready. Always be ready for Jesus' return. He will come back without warning.
1: Always be ready. And then fourth, and I think most important, nurture single-minded love for Jesus Christ. Jesus loves you. That's why he had you be here.
0: That's why he taught Luke 17. That's why the Holy Spirit had Luke include those verses in the gospel, because he wants us to be ready. So Grace Church, be
1: ready for Jesus' return. Let's stand together. Father, we get so immersed in life here, school
0: and work and driving our kids here and preparing this budget at work. And we can get so immersed in work that we lose sight of where this is all going. Please, Lord, in each of our hearts, use Luke 17 to remind us of where this is all going so we can lift up our heads. Salvation is drawing near. Redemption is coming. The full blessings of the kingdom are on their way. Jesus Christ, you will come back. Help us live with all our
1: might for your return and for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.